Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, and welcome to Brexit Means. I'm Dan Roberts. Well, for a year, the government has sought to avoid telling us what Brexit means. Theresa May's famously said that it means just that, Brexit, hence the title of this series of podcasts. But over the last few relatively deserted days of summer, the government has slipped out a series of policy papers that hint at what the Prime Minister may actually have meant. As little as possible, perhaps. We've had seven policy papers in as many days, and they've left us all a bit exhausted. But here to discuss with me what they all add up to is our Brussels correspondent, Jennifer Rankin. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Dan. Good to join you. So you've been going to a series of policy briefings held in Brussels by the UK office there, at the same time that I've been going to the same briefings here in London held by Whitehall officials. Um, and I thought it would be really interesting to compare notes, really, one what, different audiences. Mine was intended largely for the Fleet Street Press Corps, and I'm guessing yours was intended um, for some Brits, but also the European Press Corps. They were there, right? In fact, mostly, mostly a British uh, audience. Okay, right. So they're doubling up. So what I thought we'd do is we'd pick through the four big papers that we've had and try and get a sense of what the Brits are looking for and then talk about what Brussels might say in return when talks start again next week. So the first big one, I guess, was the the customs union proposals, which for listeners who haven't been following in the ins and outs, basically boiled down to uh, a lengthy spell in an interim phase where the government would look to pretty much have this existing customs union agreement, and then an attempt to mirror the EU customs agreement in future, trying to sort of find ways of of having our cake and eat it, I suppose, having a relatively free movement of goods over the border without actually having a customs union. Is that how it felt to you, Jennifer? How did it go down in Brussels? Yes, I I was very struck by the sense that we were leaving, or the UK was leaving the customs union in order to try and form a customs union with the European Union. And uh, and so far, the, re- the response from the EU has been fairly limited. It's been uh, polite and diplomatic, but I think the, the proposals on the customs union have um, have raised a lot of questions, and I think they're going to be very difficult in the negotiations to come. I think it's going to be very difficult to find an agreement there. So what I couldn't work out was whether this was a concession from the Brits where they were effectively saying, yes, all right, we understand that we can't really get by without these sorts of uh, arrangements. So we're going to try and recreate them, perhaps give them a different name so they don't sound quite as bad to our electorate. But OK, we'll, we'll do what we're told. Or whether they were just whether this was an incredibly brazen attempt to basically have all of the good bits and none of the bad bits and sort of cherry pick as the, as the Europeans are, uh, are, are worried about. I mean, do, do you... Do you have a sense of which of those it might have been, or both? So 
certainly from the, the reactions we've seen from Ireland have been particularly interesting. And, uh, and I think that's where the, the, the strongest criticism has been coming from. And there's a view that the UK is trying to have its cake and eat it. And in the words of one politician, get the EU to pay for the ingredients. <laughs> and I was very uh, struck by some comments by an Irish politician who is a vice president of the European Parliament, Mairead McGuinness. And she was very critical at the weekend of the UK ideas on the customs union. And she said that it's the UK that is putting at risk the good that has come from the Good Friday Agreement and that the way to stop this would be to remain in the customs union. But I think there's, there's certainly a question mark as to whether that is what the UK proposals actually amount to. Are they trying to remain in the customs union by the back door? And to, to other European politicians, these proposals have been dismissed as a sheer fantasy of an attempt to be in the customs union and outside at the same time. So I think there are a lot of questions um, still um, that, will, that will come over the next few weeks and uh, a lot of explanations have to come from London. Mm. You mentioned uh, Ireland. I mean, obviously, the customs union paper came the day before the Northern Ireland paper, but they touched on very similar grounds. And I think this was the deliberate strategy by the Brits, wasn't it, to say that we can't talk about the Northern Ireland border without first talking about customs. Is that right? Is that, do you sense they're trying to kind of wriggle out of this sequencing that, the, that Barnier has imposed on them? I think so. And to, to, to be fair, there, I think there is a point that you can't, you can't fully agree on your, your customs rules if you haven't got a, an agreement on, or rather you can't, you, you can't have one without the other, an agreement on, Nor- on I- the Irish border without uh, agreement on the new customs rules. The EU are insisting that Ireland has to be resolved early on in the talks. Although it's worth pointing out that the EU are saying there needs to be sufficient progress on the Ireland issue. And we're not really clear what sufficient progress means. And it seems more than likely that, in fact, the EU will be looking for a very broad political statement and nothing, nothing very detailed, because I think um, Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, he's also acutely aware of the, 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 the huge sensitivities and the history uh, on, the, on the island of Ireland. He was the EU commissioner who was involved in overseeing the the EU funds to to promote um, to promote uh, peace on the island after the Good Friday Agreement, and and I think he's very sensitive and aware of these issues. So I don't think the EU will be will be um, pushing um, for a hard border, but they are concerned uh, about about protecting their own customs union and this uh, the, the, and Brexit has thrown up a huge conundrum for everybody. Mm. Uh, just to get into the weeds for a second, because I know the read, the listeners love uh, this podcast for its appetite for detail. But y- y- there's something you mentioned there that I- I'm really keen to try and find out, which is when it comes to this test of sufficient progress, which um, to recap is this big thing that we've got to hurdle, we've got to jump before October if we want to move on to the next stage of talks. I wonder whether the hurdle on Northern Ireland is as high as it is on the other two on immigration and the divorce bill, because didn't they kick, put it into a separate category? They put it into a sort of working group rather than a negotiation stream, almost acknowledging the British point that they couldn't really resolve this one because it was tied up so much. That's absolutely right, that they the discussion on Ireland is in a, a special process of its own, which is overseen directly by the, the most senior negotiators, by the EU's um, 
uh, Sabine Vayand, who is Michelle Barnier's deputy, and on the British side by Ollie Robbins, who is David Davis's deputy. So they're taking charge of that issue. It's not subject to the same working group process as the other issues are, the money and citizens' rights and the various issues related to goods. So it's clearly seen as something more political. And I, I... fully share your view that I think the sufficient progress test is different for different areas. I think when it comes to issues such as citizens' rights, the EU will be looking for very detailed and specific guarantees. But when it comes to the issue of Ireland, it will be something broader, more political, uh, with a lot less detail. So I think it's important not to, not to run away with this idea that's an insurmountable barrier for the UK to climb. I think it's, it's possible that there can be an agreement, but it, a lot depends on unlocking, working out progress in each of these areas. Mm. And I suppose on Northern Ireland, they also start from a very high-level degree of agreement as well. I mean, I was really struck how devastating in a way the British paper was on what the consequences of a hard border would be for Northern Ireland. I mean, I've, I haven't seen anything from, from sort of Dublin or Brussels quite as sort of scary as the, as, the, as the Whitehall account of this. I mean, they really bent over backwards to show that this border's got to be kept open at all costs. And I, I, I imagine that goes down quite well, right? Or, I mean, was it, were they laying it on a bit too thick? I wouldn't say they've laid it on too thick. I mean, people are acutely aware of the, of the, of the violent history there and, and no, nobody wants to risk a peace process in any way. So everyone's treading very carefully. And I think that's why from the EU side, we haven't seen any proposals. We haven't seen their paper, for example, on the, on the Irish issue, although we're told that will be published in early September. And I think they're being very wary on this issue. They don't want a, a, a backlash um, and to be sort of seen as, as having stoked uh, more trouble on the island of Ireland. Now, just to move on to the next sort of wave of papers we had, there were two sort of, I felt, linked papers this week, one on judicial civil judicial cooperation and one on dispute resolution which was effectively about the European Court of Justice and it attracted huge headlines in London because the ECJ has been this big red line for Theresa May she's constantly said we're going to rid ourselves of those troublesome European judges and here we were in both papers acknowledging that actually um, a degree of sort of um, cooperation with judges in Europe is is, is likely to have to continue um, I wonder um, how that went down in Brussels because in London the Brexit leaning press felt that this was a big climb down Um, I wonder whether that's quite a clever game perhaps because um, they want to look like they're climbing down on this but maybe there hasn't been enough movement as far as Barnier is concerned what do you reckon? Well there are really two separate issues on the ECJ first of all when it comes to the withdrawal agreement where so far Barnier and his team have been very insistent that the ECJ must play a role in resolving disputes involving EU citizens. So, for example, any, a Polish family living in the UK should be able to have their case ultimately referred to the ECJ to be the arbiter and protect their rights. And, and so far, they haven't shown any sign of backing down on that. But then there's a second issue about the role of the ECJ in a future trade agreement. And there, I think there's a lot more flexibility. And it seems already that uh, the, the Barnier team is, is quite prepared to come up with a, an alternative setup, a tribunal or another kind of court where the, uh, the UK and the EU could resolve disputes over trade issues. 
um, as as exists already for for many in many other trade agreements. So we see there are different kinds of arrangements for Canada, for the EU Japan deal that's currently being worked out. So there are a lot of different models on the on the shelf, and I think there there will be a lot more flexibility. Mm. Yes, I mean I uh, the Brits were very keen to separate out enforcement from dispute resolution, and uh, and very much say, look, we've got these brilliant, very old historic world famous courts you can trust our judges um, even if we occasionally call them enemies of the people but you know can trust the independent judiciary to manage enforcement cases if you have your your aggrieved polish immigrant who's been kicked out or something but what i couldn't get out from the officials and i I wonder if you've got a take on this is whether one quickly becomes the other because my sense was that dispute resolution wasn't necessarily just limited to trade it would be any high level dispute between member states and and Britain about whether there's been an infringement of the Brexit agreement. Now, I can imagine an individual immigration appeal very quickly becoming an international test case if the Polish government decides it wants to escalate this all the way up to the ECJ or the Commission, and the Commission then um, challenges Britain on this and saying you're walking back on our agreed Brexit deal here and the whole thing is in jeopardy. It would have to become a dispute resolution thing done at a level where there would be ECJ involvement. So I, I, I just wonder whether one becomes the other. Am I being overly cynical there, do you think? I think, I mean, this this shows why it's 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 such a, an important issue to to untangle and to really to come up with an agreement on on both sides because at the moment I, I I don't see the EU giving way on their insistence that the ECJ should play this role in protecting the rights of EU citizens. They feel it would be unprecedented for EU citizens not to be protected by the ECJ. And there's a, and and yes, the UK have been making that argument that our you know our courts have been enforcing the rule of law for for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it hasn't cut um, much of a so far with the EU side. So I think this is really something we'll have to, to watch for over the coming weeks to see w- um, whether there might be a shift um, in either direction. Mm. Now, the last one we had today um, was on data. And I have to admit, I went into it, A, slightly exhausted and, and B, a little bit jaded and, and wondering whether there would really be anything interesting to say about this. But I was um, struck by a couple of things. One, just how interesting d- uh, data, and by, by this we mean sort of electronic sharing of data, the sort of data mining that Google does or that the banks keep on us, how, how this is actually a really hot topic around the world at the moment. You know, this is both from, from the way the government snoop on us, that Edward Snowden um, exposed, and especially now the role of the big US internet companies in hoovering up our data for commercial gain. Um, it really feels to me in a way I didn't quite appreciate before that this is a big international battleground um, uh, in the coming years. Um, the other thing I felt about the data deal uh, that they were proposing today is it, re- it was a really extreme example of how um, Britain is basically looking to keep everything exactly the same. I mean literally there was a conversation at one point in the in the UK, in the London briefing about well it doesn't this amount to the fact that you just want to have everything exactly as it is now and, and, and the answer seemed to be yes and uh, it's not is very brazen uh, and, and typical in some respects of the whole of these seven different papers and I I just wondered how whether, whether you got a slightly different version of that or, or, or whether they they were really that brazen they will be that brazen in Brussels I think there was an acknowledgement that that um, to put it mildly, data protection had not was not an issue in the referendum that had uh, aroused a lot of passion and had uh, driven the debates. It's one of the many issues that are 
well below the tip of the iceberg that um, that now have to be worked out. One of the many very complex issues, and um, and the fact is the the UK has no choice but to come up with uh, an alternative set of data provision rules if it wants to continue having data shared from EU citizens, which will be a big issue for banks, for any internet companies hoping to do business in Europe. And yes, there are alternative rules that you could fall back on, but it would be much more convenient to be part of an existing EU structure. So if, if the UK wants that, it really has no choice but to apply to, to the EU authorities to be recognised as, as being a safe country to, to, to get this equivalent status, which, which a dozen other countries around the world have already done. Canada has done it, for example. The Japan is is considering doing this. So the UK will be in the same the same sort of uh, basket, if you like, as those countries looking for that recognition from the EU and um, and there isn't really any alternative to getting it. So it does show the, the, the hard reality of Brexit that and, until now the UK has actually played a very big role in shaping EU data protection legislation and in future it will be uh, on the outside and, and trying to... to to win recognition from EU authorities. Yes, quite. Right, now, so finally, turning to where this all leaves us as we go into the next round, which I think is the third, third or fourth, third substantive The third round, third round yes. yes. Um, starts on Monday, or does it? Because it's a bank holiday here on Monday. Did they resolve that Well, one? we haven't had the timetable confirmed yet. I think there's still a hope that it will start on Monday, bank holiday or no bank holiday. The EU officials would, talk, would point out they had to work for a recent August bank holiday, so they don't mind if the UK has to do the same. That's hilarious. I, th- it, there was a sort of look of stunned sort of silence on the civil servant's face this morning when it was when it was raised. I think they hadn't quite. Yes, because it's not a bank holiday in, in Belgium <laughs> where we're, we're based, I should point out. Excellent, excellent. Uh, we might have to have harmonisation of public holidays as an Indeed. extra Brexit th- negotiating thread. So, um, I mean, Michel Barnier has been pretty... Withering this week, I saw a whole series of tweets where he tweeted out all the retweeted all the existing EU position papers, and said these are the ones we want to be discussing, which are these three divorce um, Ireland and um, uh, and citizens' rights. Uh, are they just going to ignore everything that's come out of London the last week, or or has David Davis sort of successfully managed to wheedle in some future discussions into all of this? I I, I don't think he has actually. I from from the discussions that EU diplomats have been having even this this morning, there's already a, a view that's formed quite quickly that they don't want the British to blur the lines on the EU sequencing. They want to stick with the Barnier sequence of the divorce issues first, the money, the citizens, the Irish the Irish question and then come to the future trade agreement. But nonetheless I think the you know clearly people will be reading these papers and, and talking about these papers. So um, so they they will be there at the at the back of the at the back of people's minds. Mm. And it was all looking pretty bleak a few weeks ago. I mean, I felt to me that there was zero chance of us getting over the um, the hurdle um, before October. I wonder though whether this some some of the compromises concessions that seem to have been coming out from here in the last few days might have increased the odds a little bit from sort of zero to maybe 10 20 percent chance of getting through to october what what do you think i don't think we can rule out uh getting an agreement on sufficient progress in october next week is the third round we have two more rounds to come after that and they could even add in more days if they think things are going well enough so i think there is there is the possibility there i think it's a i think it's a slim possibility i think the money is going to be an extremely difficult issue and we've already 
heard that David Davis is going to arrive next week and not going to say anything at all about what the UK's obligations to the EU might be. And if we rewind back to last time, we'll remember that that was the last thing that Michel Barnier said, that the UK had to come prepared and ready to talk about the money next time. Um, but uh, So there, we are going to hit a bit, a bit of an impasse there, and it's whether they can make progress in the, the September round and the October round. I think that will be the really decisive moment when we, we have a, a good sense of whether there will be an agreement to to go ahead to phase two to the trade talks or not. Mm, money, money, money. It's all going to be about the money. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Jennifer Rankin for joining us. Please subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. If you want to get in touch about Brexit, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. And if you'd like to review the pod and be in with a chance of featuring in our podcast weekly column, then email podcasts at theguardian.com. Till next week, I've been Dan Roberts. The producer is Rowan Slaney. And this was Brexit Means. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.